Welcome to the All People's Church podcast. We believe in loving God, strengthening families, and developing leaders. We are so excited for you to hear this life-changing message recorded live at one of our worship experiences. Remember to share and subscribe to this podcast and enjoy the message. Well, listen, I want to welcome you. My name is Moses Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm thrilled. I'm honored uh, to be with you. This is our second session in 2024, um, and it's going to be good. It's going to be a long one, and so we're actually going to do something a little bit different uh, tonight. Instead of reading the text beforehand, we'll actually just walk through the text um, because it's 39 verses, and so by the time I finish reading, we'll, be, we'll lose like 10 minutes, and so I need those 10 minutes. You know what I mean? Uh, you're like, yeah, you do. And so <laughs> we're going to do that. We're going to do that tonight. Uh, a reminder for anyone who is new to Wednesday night, Wednesday nights exist um, really to uh, allow us to have a space uh, where we are intentionally um, studying Scripture in a way that deeply forms us in our relationship with Jesus. And so the goal of Wednesday night is um, a few things. Number one, biblical literacy. Uh, we want to be followers of Jesus who actually know the Bible, right? And so coming to Wednesday nights will help you do that. Uh, we also want to be followers of Jesus who are deep. We want to have depth, right? We want to be followers of Jesus who can actually think Amen? And so, um, I forget who said it, but someone once said, church shouldn't be the place where uh, we have to leave our brains outside before we come in. And so, we want to be deep followers of Jesus. And then, obviously, we also want to be consistent followers of Jesus. And that's going to be very important tonight, even as you'll notice the text that we get into tonight, the idea of consistency. Uh, and the process, I think, uh, by which we remove the disparity between um, what we profess and how we live. Amen? So we're going to be in Matthew 23 uh, tonight, and uh, this is three days before the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and it is his last public appearance, his last public um, discussion, if you will. This is the last time he's publicly going to address people. After this point, it's going to be about him and his 12 disciples because he's going to get them ready for the moment of his death. But tonight we're going to get into Jesus' last public um, declaration three days before his crucifixion. What will he say? Who will he address? How many know if Jesus has something to say and his final address to the public, it's going to be important. It's going to be something that we should pay attention to. Amen? So why don't we pray and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. Lord, for bringing us here together in this room and even those watching online and listening later. God, we thank you that you are here with us. Lord, we avail ourselves to you. God, we want to be people who follow you 
in a way that is real, that actually touches and transforms every part of our lives. And so tonight, Lord, as we get into the text, would you teach us and would you bring even alignment into our lives? Holy Spirit, would you bring your life? We need your life. Uh, For we know that you have the power to transform us, to change us for your glory. And so uh, help us to think tonight. Help us to be uh, followers of Jesus who are deep and consistent. We ask for that. And Lord, we also know that as we uh, come under your rule and your reign, that the other issues of our life also are taken care of. And so we thank you, God, for uh, the issues maybe that are weighing in on our hearts and our minds. Um, Even if they move into the background, Lord, as we focus in on your word for the next couple of moments, we know that you see those issues and our concerns are your concerns. And so we thank you for that tonight, Lord, that you are a holistic God and that we can approach you holistically. And so do what only you can do tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I had to pray a little long there because it's a heavy text. And so that was a joke. Okay. Um, Although it wasn't a joke because it is a heavy text. Okay. Matthew 23. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 23? We're going to do the whole chapter today, which is 39 verses. 39 verses. All right, you there? Amen. All right, let's, let's, do, let's do this. So remember, context, where is Jesus? Even in these last couple of sessions that we've had, where does Jesus find himself? In the synagogue, in the temple, right? The whole thing starts off in Matthew 21 as he makes his entrance into uh, Jerusalem, into the temple. And we know there uh, he turns over the temple tables um, and the money exchangers, he kicks them out. And the blind, the lame, those who need God the most can finally come to the place where God is. Isn't that incredible? That's really what Jesus has come to do. He has come to make way for those who need God the most. And the reality is you have to come to a place where you believe that. That you're actually in a great need for God. I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need, he said. And so I think that's true. We have to come to the realization of where we are without him and the beauty and the blessing and the promises available to us when we are with him. And so he makes way for that. And then we know he gets into discussion, arguments. He begins to get tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that are there. Eventually, they run out of asking Jesus questions because they can't get him to slip up. And then Jesus finally turns the tables and he begins to ask them right before this, the last section of Matthew 22, uh, Jesus asks them a very critical question about who is the Christ. Remember that? And so he says, 
he, they, they respond that he's the son of David, of course. And he says, well, if that's the case, how come David addresses him in one of his Psalms as my Lord? If he's the son of David, how can he be the Lord of David? They can't answer the question, but the answer is because the son of David is actually greater than David. Because he's the Messiah. He is God incarnate. Right? And so we pick up right after that, Jesus turns to the crowds and his disciples. And here now he begins to talk. The whole of Matthew 23 is just Jesus talking. Okay? Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples. Now, he says to the crowds and his disciples, the reason he's talking to them is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, have gone away. They have left Jesus. They've created some space and distance. Now, most likely, they are still in the area. But they have pulled back from Jesus because he, 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 he is not getting tripped up based on the questions they're asking because they continue to test him over and over and over again. And, and you remember that that is synonymous. That is, that is a symbol of the Lamb of God being brought into the temple to be examined to make sure that it is without spot, without blemish, without... Right? And so Jesus is that Lamb of God. So he turns to the crowds. He turns to his disciples, meaning he's taken his attention off the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But make no mistake, he's going to address them. Here's what he says, because he gets right into it. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes were really individuals focused on uh, the letter of scripture. They were focused on doctrine. They were focused on understanding scripture. Pharisees more so concerned themselves with oral tradition and theology. And so he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on whose seat? Moses' seat. Now, um, very quickly, the context of this, uh, some scholars say that there, were, there was an actual literal seat in the synagogue, in the temple, that they would call the seat of Moses, and eventually that would be the seat that the Messiah would sit on, but the leader of the synagogue would sit there. The leader would sit there, and you would know that that's the guy in charge. So, notice, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So, and so do, so do, and observe whatever they tell you. So what is he saying? He says, do and observe whatever notice they tell you, but, this is where it gets interesting, not the works that they do. Okay? Now, I think there is a little bit of sarcastic a sarcastic tone in the voice of Jesus. And we'll get to why that is. He says, so do and observe whatever they tell you because they have a seat of authority. Right. Yeah. right? And so it's important that, hey, you do what those in authority tell you. You honor and respect their authority. But he says, hey, um, don't actually observe the works that they do. For, right? Why? Why Jesus? For, because... They preach, but do not practice. So don't observe their life. Their words might have some value because they'll teach you the law. They'll teach you the commandments. They'll teach you out of uh, the Old Testament scripture. And so their words might have value, um, but their life doesn't. Right off the bat, Jesus is starting off 
with some heavy, heavy words. Could you imagine if somebody said that about you? Hey, listen to what they say. I mean, they have some nice things to say, but don't actually observe their life because all the stuff they talk about, they actually don't do. Be like, what? Did, you know what I mean? You would go red in the face. You would be so upset, so angry. What Jesus is saying is, hey, uh, these people preach better than they live. They preach better than they live. And, and let me just be honest and transparent with you. I also preach better than I live. This is a struggle for a lot of Christians, especially those in leadership, because in leadership, you can, you can hide from accountability. Uh, you don't always have to be transparent. You can talk about what God did in the 90s and, and neglect the fact that he's actually working in you right now, that there's impurities in you right now he's trying to remove, that there's tendencies right now he's removing from you, that there's appetites right now that he's adjusting in you today, not just the 90s. Hello? And so, hey, they, they preach better than they live. And if you can't relate to that, then let me just bring it close to home for you. You post better than you live. You do. You do. You, you post way better than you live. Whether it's highlights of worship and scripture or a song or it's the best outfits and, and, and date nights or going on vacation, you post better than you live. There are inconsistencies that you keep hidden for obvious reasons. You don't want people knowing that part of you. It's much better when they see the best version of ourselves. I mean, that's what social media allows us to do, isn't it? It allows us to post the best part of us, which has its own challenges as you struggle even, I think, with self-esteem and your own worth and value uh, because you see the best versions of people. And then you begin to compare your life, the parts that are hidden. Hello? No one's, no one's posting hidden parts. You, you know, all those posts about I woke up like this are fake. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about woke up like this. You've got eyeliner on and like, hello? Like, you know, everything. So, so the reality is we live, in a, we live in a culture, we live in a world right now where that is actually the desire for, for most people. How do I... How do I indicate a life to people that I'm actually not living so that they can be impressed by a version of me that isn't actually me. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. And so Jesus says, hey, they preach, but they don't practice. Now, here's what they do. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. So uh, we have in the Old Testament uh, 613 commandments. Now on top of this, what the Pharisees have added is what they call the oral law. 
The oral law essentially is a way to build a fence around a law that God has already given. It's to build a fence around a commandment that God has already given. So if it's, let's just say, hey, uh, you're not allowed to eat five loaves of bread in one day. The fence around that would be, hey, you're only allowed to eat two loaves of bread a day. So you never get close to the five. You see, you see that? You get what I'm saying? If something is, let's say, if something is hot to touch and for safety reasons, you're only allowed up to three feet of distance toward it for safety reasons. Then what the oral law would say is, no, you're actually only allowed five feet. And so it was a way that they would keep themselves extra safe from breaking any commandments and any laws of God. Now, that sounds good. How can you put up measures? It, it, almost work, it almost sounds like accountability for a moment. Hey, what are the things that you can put up that act as safeguards so that you don't even get close to disobeying God? Now, it sounds good, doesn't it? Except for they began treating these safeguards as law. And so it wasn't just about the commandments that God has written and the commandments that were in the Old Testament. It literally became their oral tradition became oral law. And so Jesus is saying, you tie up these heavy burdens that are hard to bear and you lay them on people's shoulders. You should be doing this. You shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. That's not right. You're a sinner. You're living in sin. Anytime somebody would get sick, well, it's because you're in sin. You're cursed. You're not allowed anywhere close to God and the temple. And so they began to lay these burdens on people, but they themselves, Jesus says, are not willing to move them with their fingers finger and so what they're telling other people to do the burdens they're placing on other people Jesus is saying well you don't actually live with the same rules there are things you tell other people to do that you don't do there are things that you say they shouldn't do that you actually do and so really what begins to happen here is they would demand from people legalistic performance. They would demand from people legalistic performance. Now, parents, if you have kids, I want you to just ask even yourself, am I demanding legalistic performance from my kids? Are, are they not allowed to get away with things that I am? We do this even with um, new believers that we come into relationship with. Somebody finally crosses the line of faith and puts their trust in Jesus and becomes a follower of Jesus. And all of a sudden, what are the first things we do? We tell them all the things they cannot do as a Christian. And we throw these burdens on them. Meanwhile, we're living as inconsistent followers of Jesus. But we're not going to tell them that. What we're going to tell them is, hey, listen, I've been following Jesus for X amount of years. I know what I'm talking about. And so you shouldn't be doing those things. Hello? 
And so they began to demand legalistic performance from other people. And here's what Jesus says. The motive was why? They do all these deeds to be seen by others. That's the motivation. The motivation is not to worship God. The motivation is not to become more like him. The motivation is to be seen by others. And this really forces us to ask the question, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we do the things that we do? Especially the things we say are for God. Why do we do the things we do? Have you ever done a good deed and somehow it just gets brought up into conversation? <laughs> they didn't ask you about it. It just, it just gets brought up. You know what I mean? I feel like this could really encourage you. Today I helped this homeless man. And, <laughs> and so now there is a part of encouraging one another with what's taking place, but of course, it has to fit the context and the setting of any conversation that we're a part of. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why am I doing this thing? Is it to actually make much of God? Is it because the Holy Spirit told me to do so and I was being obedient? Is it because I'm actually, I actually feel like I'm undergoing transformation? And the person I used to be, I feel like I'm changing from that and becoming someone new in Christ. Or is it because I'm trying to impress others? Now, of course, we would also have to, you would also have to ask the question, where am I most, when am I most passionate for God? Is it when others are around? Is my passion for God at its peak when others are around? Because it would allow you to gain some insight into the motive that might be behind the passion you're professing. Or is that passion still at that high when nobody else is around and it's just you and Jesus? And so they did these deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long now these were really boxes that they would tie on their arms and their head and they would have scripture in there and and they would make them broad so it was about a wooden square and they would make them as big as they possibly could so they would know these are people who are concentrated on scripture and the law of god and the fringes of their robes and their prayer robes, they would make them as long as they could. And it really, began, it really began to become about theatrics. It was no longer about genuine, real relationship with God. It became about theatrics. They did it to be seen by others. Now, remember in Matthew, um, let me see if I could turn there really quickly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Jesus talks about helping other people. And in verse, I want to say it is, let's see if I can find it really quick. Matthew 6, Matthew 6, Matthew 6. 
Ha, right here. So beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. So in Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees that he's now addressing in Matthew 23. He's saying, don't be like them, which means that this wasn't, this wasn't something that they would do as a one-off. This was the life that they were living. They were living a life of hypocrisy. They were literally living a life where they did things for the sake of being seen by others. And what, God, and what Jesus said there in Matthew 6 was simply this. Hey, they do it for their reward on earth, and that will be the sum total of their reward. It will be the acknowledgement and the praise they get from other people, and that is it. But if you do it for the Father, then your reward will carry into eternity. And what the Father sees you do in secret, he will reward And so that ties back to Matthew 6. But let's continue. He says, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Now, they love, you see that? They love the place of honor. They they are in love, you can say, with power. Power and position is a lot of times what drives self-righteousness. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi with others. Hey, they would literally go around the marketplace and if you failed to address them, they would call you out and say, hey, you didn't address me. And you weren't allowed to call them by name. You'd have to call them rabbi. You would have to. And giving honor to them was equivalent to giving honor to God. And they could literally find you guilty of blasphemy depending on the degree of dishonor they felt. How wild is that when power and position begin to get into the hearts of men and women? Because the reality is we weren't created to handle that. Hello? Our, our personalities and our egos, egos are so fickle that any amount of praise that we receive goes instantly to our head. Right? You ever been told when you, you, know, you dress up really nice and there's a particular outfit and somebody really compliments that outfit? And you ever find yourself wearing that outfit way more than you used to? <laughs> yeah, because it goes to your head. Right? And I can, I can go through all sorts of examples um, where when we are treated nice and we're treated with, with honor and position, our egos like that. And you know your egos like it because of how you respond when you get, when you get dished dishonor. So how you respond to dishonor actually reveals how in love you are with honor. Does that make sense? Because if nobody's allowed to disrespect you, can't talk, talking to me like that, 
Yeah, you know who I am? Right? Well, well, they ought to be grateful that I'm a Christian because if I wasn't, I would X, Y. Yeah. Yeah, so how we handle dishonor reveals how in love we are with honor. Does that make sense? All right, let's continue. He says, but you, so now he shifts, right? But you, so who's he talking to here? He's talking to his disciples. But you are not to be called rabbi. Now, remember, moments or, 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 or moments after, literally 50 days from this, God is going to send the Holy Spirit, and it's going to be Pentecost. Which means the disciples that Jesus is talking to here, they are going to usher in the new era of Christianity. They're going to usher in and help usher in, by the help of the Holy Spirit, the new movement. And they will be known as Christians, little Christ. They will be known as people of the way. So these are the leaders of the next move of God. So here's Jesus' words to them. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. So rabbi means teacher, right? So you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. So what is he saying? You as the next leaders... You're all brothers. So, so make sure you don't fall into the trap of who is the highest here? Who is the greatest here? Because remember, they love asking Jesus that question. And so he says this, and, no, and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you, there it is, shall be your servant. So you see the upside down view that Jesus presents to his leaders. He, he exposes the leaders of that current day. He says, this is what they live for. And you're actually going to be countercultural. He says, no, you're, 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 I'm actually going to call you to live according to a different culture, which is the culture of the kingdom, where you're actually going to redefine leadership on earth. You're going to redefine leadership on earth. And leadership in my kingdom has to do with servanthood. And that is the new definition of leadership that you're going to bring on this earth. And so, what does leadership look like from heaven's perspective? This. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so, here is a call that if you are in a position of power, if you have been given leadership to any degree, right, whether that is in the workplace or maybe that is even at home, You are to walk in humility and walk and live as a servant. Does that make sense? And so what is Jesus teaching? He's saying, hey, listen, do not, ex uh, do not let titles go to your head to the point where you are exploiting them. And you are using titles as a way to get things that you want. Does that make sense? Okay, now, 
These are the warnings Jesus gives to leaders. Now he's going to move into the woes. Someone say woe. Woe. Yeah, and the woes he's going to get into are not like, whoa, that's really cool. No, this woe is W-O-E, and I'll define it for you very quickly because he says, woe to you, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And and so um, let me give you two biblical uh, Bible dictionary definitions of this word so you understand uh, the level of emotion attached to this word. Not a good word. Um, Here's... What one Bible dictionary says that it is, an it, is, it is an interjection that denotes pain, discomfort, and unhappiness. It is a distinctive form of prophetic speech found both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, which can also mean horror and dreadfulness. So these are serious words that Jesus is now about to pronounce over the religious leaders of that day, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And then he says this word right here, hypocrites. Now, this is the closest Jesus has ever gone and gotten to cussing. I'm so serious. To a Jewish man, and especially a religious leader, There was nothing worse than this word. This is the closest Jesus gets to cussing. Now, in that day and age, um, Jewish religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, they hated the arts. They did not like theatrics. And so this word hypocrite is a word that comes from the theater world. This means an individual who is playing the part it's an actor that that would literally wear a mask because they are operating in an identity that is not theirs and so in that day and age religious leaders hated the the arts and really that was more of an influence that came from the roman greco world because they were into that the jewish man did not like that and so being called a hypocrite was one of the worst things you could be called as a jewish man and especially a jewish leader And so he says, you hypocrites, you actors, you love to play the part. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's face. Now, we have to understand what this means. So the kingdom of heaven, who brings the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, right? So what he's saying here is you reject me in such a strong way. And you cause other people to reject me also because you spread your venom into them. So you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourself, meaning you reject me. And then you cause others also to not enter in. And so woe to you, you hypocrites. For... You don't enter yourself and you don't enter, you don't allow others to enter in as well. That is the first woe. Woe number two, let's go through these. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, again, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, which this word here really just means convert. 
And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Whoa. He is talking to religious leaders in the temple. And he is saying, you make your converts twice as much children of hell as yourselves. This is obviously some heavy, heavy language from Jesus. Now, what was the problem here? The problem was this. They were actually interested in making disciples of themselves and not of God. They were converting people to their own thinking and not the thoughts of God. And so Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you're you're not going to get into heaven. And you're, you're making converts and disciples now who are also not going to get into heaven. Because you refuse to allow God to be God and you rather have all the power and all the control. You rather be God yourself than let God be God. And one of the primary ways they were doing that is that they were converting people to their own thinking and not to the thoughts of God. And this is why Jesus had to say to them, hey, you've got the letter of the law but you don't have the spirit of the law. You don't see that the law and the prophets are actually fulfilled in me. You search in them for truth and you don't realize that they actually testify of me. Why? Because they use the law to validate and confirm their own thoughts. They didn't come to the word of God open-handed, open-hearted, open-minded to say, okay, God, let your thoughts take over my thoughts. It was, no, no, no. Okay, if I'm going to get into the word, then I'm going to use the word to confirm the thoughts and the feelings that I already have. How many times do we do that? It's called selective hearing. In psychology, it's called a cognitive bias. We hear what we want to hear. We hear what we already believe, and we, and we pick and choose and confirm the things that we already have in our hearts. And we go, yep, God gets me. And that's what they were doing. How are we doing so far? Okay, this is woe number two. Let's go to woe number three. There's seven of these, so we got to move along. Okay, he says, woe to you blind guides. Now, this is funny. So he changes from hypocrites, goes into blind guides. Now, uh, how effective would a guide be if he was blind? You know what I mean? Like if you were to go on a tour somewhere and, and they said, oh, here comes your tour guide. And, uh, you know, obviously I don't mean this in any offensive way, but they come with like, you know, those shaded glasses and a stick. This, you wouldn't feel very confident about the effectiveness of this individual to lead you and guide you on a tour. So what is he saying? He's saying you are religious leaders and you are completely ineffective. You're blind guides. Who say, if anyone swears by the temple, now this is interesting, I'll give some context to it, but let's read this whole thing. If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. Um, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. So here, Jesus is going to talk about um, oaths and vows. 
So he says, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if they swear by the gold of the temple, then he's bound by his oath. He says, you blind fools. Whoa. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Continues. He says, and you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, then he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Who dwells in it? God. So here you have these these individuals who have clearly misunderstood what is sacred and what is common. So this is why Jesus gets so upset when he comes into the temple, temple courts and he says, hey, listen, God said that his house ought to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. You have taken what is sacred and you have brought in what is common and you have given more value to that which is common than that which is sacred. My house is supposed to be a house of prayer where people can connect with God, know God and encounter his presence and you have used it to exploit the poor. And you have oversold them on offerings that they couldn't afford in the first place. And so that's what they're doing. But this context is in regards to their vows and their oaths. And so remember in Matthew chapter 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, listen, don't swear by this or by that. Let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. In other words, be integrous. If, you're gonna, if you said you're going to do something, then do that thing. Don't look for excuses and loopholes as ways to get out. Um, this became such a strong thing in that culture. Really, it became a little bit of a game, if you will, um, where... Uh, they were masters at creating excuses to get out of commitments. In fact, um, they even compiled a series of rulings and documents of vows and oaths. Well, if you vowed this, then okay, you got to do it. But if you vowed this, then nah, you kind of have a way out of it because... And so if, if somebody would vow to Jesus's point, if somebody would vow um, and swear by the altar and you say, hey, well, remember that thing you said you were going to do and you swear you took, you took an oath, uh, you know, even to, to the altar. And then you go, well, um, well, you know, it's, it's, it was the altar. It wasn't the gift on the altar that I swore by. You know, the gift is far more important. And, and so then you would get a way out. Oh, yeah, I guess. Okay. That's literally what they began to do. They had a rule book for this on how to get out of commitment. And Jesus says, no, no, no. This is not how you're going to do things. And so whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So Jesus is putting weight If you're going to swear by anything, understand that it ultimately is connected to God. You owe God an account. Let's continue. Uh, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is woe number four. Hypocrites. There it is again. Notice now, for you tithe. Now, tithing is good. It's commanded by the Old Testament. Now, watch what they tithe. Okay? You were were, were supposed to tithe of of your income, 
they took it a step further. They said, now nah, we're not just going to tithe of our income. We're going to tithe our mint, our dill, our cumin, everything that grows in our garden. And guess what? When you were at the synagogue, you would see them not only put in their coins, you would see them put in their herbs. You would go, wow. They tithe everything. And so he says, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and have neglected, notice, the weightier matters of the law, which are what? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let me see if I can change the color. Um, uh, Faithfulness, justice, and mercy. So he's saying, now I want you to catch this. Jesus has literally said that as it relates to the law and the commandments of God, they are things that weigh more than others. Isn't that crazy? That That's what he says, right? He says, hey, you did that. You neglected the weightier matters. Now, he says this. These you ought to have done, meaning you want to tithe your mint, your dill, your cumin. Okay, you ought to have done that, but you you ought to have done it without neglecting the others. And so what, what is Jesus saying? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, hey, listen, you're so good at majoring on the minors, to the point where you actually ignore and, uh, uh, and forget about that which is actually major in the eyes of God. What is major in the eyes of God? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Now, do you notice that these three things exist within the context of relationships? What is Jesus' point here? You think your relationship with God is only about you and God. And he says, no, they're not. Your relationship with God is not only about you and God. You can worship him. You want to tithe your dill, cumin, and your herbs? Go ahead. But do not neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness. These are the things that allow people to see the character of God in your life. He says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, that's a very weird saying, and let me explain. Both a gnat, which is an insect, and a camel are considered uh, ceremonially unclean. And so what they actually used to do is they used to make this thing out of wine that would keep the insects out. But they would give that so much attention that they would actually forget that there are camels also here and that camels are also uh, ceremonially unclean. And so Jesus' whole point is, you give so much attention to the little gnat and you forget the massive camel. You give all this attention to tithing these tiny little herbs and cumin and all this and you forget the weightier matters like my character actually flowing through you and your life. That matters more. Does that make sense? He says, woe to you. This is number five. You scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Are you getting the theme here? Yeah. Um, Jesus um, is doing a number on the scribes and the Pharisees. And the reason he's doing such a number on them, again, is because in a couple of days, he's going to be crucified. 
In fact, in the next chapter, we'll get to this, he's actually going to begin to talk about the destruction of the temple and the removal of this old system because he is ushering in a new system that isn't going to be about a religious system. It's going to be about men and women filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're not going to have to go to a temple. They're now going to be the temple and they can encounter the presence of God wherever they are. So he says, woe to you scribes and you Pharisees, uh, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Now, in that day and age, if you, if you ate off of a dirty plate or a bowl, it would make you unclean. And so he says, hey, listen, your works are basically like cleaning the outside of the dish, but the inside is still disgusting. And that's what you eat out of. He says, it's full of greed and self-indulgence. He continues, he says, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate and that the outside may be clean also. And so he's saying this, it is the inside that is the place where transformation begins. Transformation doesn't begin on the outside. Transformation begins on the inside. That's his whole point. And then he continues and he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but are full of dead people's bones. And again, all uncleanliness. And so you notice that their whole thing are we, their whole pride and ego is about, Hey, we are clean. We are righteous. We are above the rest. And yet Jesus continues to attack them with the fact that they are inwardly disgusting. In the places and spaces that matter most, they've got it wrong. And so there was a custom in that day and age to cover the tombs with chalk so that you would know that that is a tomb so that you don't accidentally go touching it, which would make you unclean for literally seven days. You would have to perform ceremony laws to make yourself clean again so you could enter once again into normal living in society. So that's what they used to do. But inside, how many know, no matter what color you paint a tomb, are dead bones. And so he's saying, that's your religion. That is your righteousness. Outside, it looks great, but inside, it is dead. How are we doing so far? Doing okay? So you also outwardly appear righteous. Here it is, right? But within you, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I'm going to run through these last ones really quickly because we got only uh, a little while left and I want to just make some final notes after we run through these. Um, this is number seven. This is the last one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the, momentum, the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets, right? So they say, if we lived in the days of notice, our fathers, then we wouldn't have taken part in, with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. And he says, see, you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, what Jesus is saying here 
is this. Remember in, 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 in the gospel, of, or in, earlier in the gospel of Matthew where he goes into the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about hatred in the heart. And he says, hatred in the heart actually makes you guilty of murder. And he's saying, hey, listen, your motivations make you murderers. And we know in a couple of days, they're actually going to murder Jesus. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers, right? Things you love to hear Jesus call you. How are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? There it is again. Jesus is reconfirming. You are not going to heaven. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men, some of whom you will kill. So Jesus is talking future here now, right? He's talking future. Some of them whom you will kill and crucify and some who you will flog down in your synagogues and persecute them from time. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus prophesying here in verse 34? He's prophesying the early church. And we know that the first person that they kill is who? Stephen in Acts 7. Stephen literally preaches his first and last sermon. It's the same sermon. His first and last sermon are the same sermon because he gets stoned right after for telling them about Jesus. And so he's literally prophesying in verse 34, hey, here's what you're going to do with other messengers and prophets I'm going to send you who are going to testify of the one. Remember, Peter gets up and says, hey, the, the, the Christ whom you killed. And so they're going to come and testify and listen what? You're going to respond in the same way. You're not going to change your mind. He continues, he says, so that on you may come all the righteous, righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now, Abel is recorded as the first murder in the Bible, and Zechariah is recorded as the last murder in the Bible. And so literally, he, what he's saying there is all these things will come upon this generation. You are guilty of murdering every good prophet, messenger that comes from God to reveal God to you rather than saying yes to God. You murder the voices God sends. And we know that they're going to do that with Jesus. Then he says here, verse 37, and we're almost done. He shifts a little bit. He goes from being angry to lamenting. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children? Now watch this. Jesus is talking as if he was God. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? You were not willing. We're going to come back to that. Last two verses. See your house. House was synonymous with temple. So remember, they're in the temple. He says, see your house, your temple is left to you desolate. And we know that 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now remember, Matthew 21, triumphal entry. What are they, what are they shouting? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where there was an opportunity to see him for who he really was, they didn't. And so he's saying, listen, you're not going to see me again because this is his last public appearance, an announcement. These are the last public words of Jesus. And so he's saying, hey, listen, you're not going to see me again. And he's quoting out of Psalms 118, verse 26. Um, Again, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the Lord. And we know that will be the second coming of Jesus. Now, when he says here, your house is left to you in desolate. Again, he's talking about the destruction of the temple, which we're going to get into in chapter 24 and in chapter 25. Now, watch this. The temple is the center of their religious system. In other words, if The temple collapses, they collapse. If the temple ceases to exist, then so does their authority. So Jesus is not just getting rid of the temple. He's also getting rid of the old system. And he is getting rid of the leadership of the old system. You see that? And so he's going to bring in new leadership with his disciples. All right. How are we doing? We got about six minutes. That was heavy. Um, I could only imagine what the tension in the temple courts was like as Jesus declared these warnings and these woes to the Pharisees. The individuals who would have said, we know God the most, are now being told it was all an act. It was all an act. They were simply playing the part. And you know, it's so easy to play the part. You, you have to come to church maybe just a couple of times to get familiar with the language, to get familiar with the cues of when to lift your hands. Just a couple of moments. And you get familiar with the culture. And you conform rather to, you conform to the culture rather than conforming to Christ. And it's so easy to play the part so easy to play the part the first thing Jesus attacks them on is their the fact that they actually don't have a life I want you to hear this that is worth replicating they preach better than they live they post better than they live that's the first thing Jesus attacks them on he says hey listen, listen to what they say sure but don't follow how they live. And I wonder, even for you, what in your life is worth replicating? Or would Jesus say, hey, listen to what they say. Don't worry about what they do. But what are the things in your life that are there because of the power 
and the work of Jesus because of the gospel has actually manifested itself into a reality in your life. What are the things in your life that are worth replicating, reproducing? What are the things in your life that you would actually like to pass on to others? If the only good you produce in your life is good words, then there is a discrepancy between the life you're living and the life that's found in Jesus. If the only good you produce in your life are matters of words, then there is a massive gap between the life you're living and the life the Bible says is found in Jesus. He then gets on them about hypocrisy. And he says, you're actually not going to get to heaven. I want you to catch this because this is so heavy and I've been struggling really all week because of the heaviness of this. He says to the Pharisees, hey, you're not going to heaven. Remember, he says, you are a child of hell. That's where you're going. And he doesn't tell them they're going to hell because of their sin. He tells them they're going to hell because of their hypocrisy. Now, their sin is their hypocrisy. But what he emphasizes is hypocrisy, meaning hypocrisy is probably one of the most dangerous sins, if not the dangerous If that's what Jesus is going to highlight on his last public declaration before he goes to the cross is the dangers of hypocrisy, the dangers of playing the part of a life you're actually not living, then it is the most dangerous thing we could do. Playing the part without a true relationship with God, without actual true transformation God would rather you be an honest work in progress than for you to be somebody who just plays the part and pretends you've got it all figured out he gets on them about making converts of themselves rather than converts of God and I wonder, even in our hearts, do we want followers of Jesus more than we want followers of ourselves? And on the flip side of that, on the inverted side of that, I think we have to get to the point where we care more about the opinion of God than the opinions of those who have platforms and hold mics. You cannot, church, care more about what a person with a platform has to say, regardless of how, you, how much you relate to them or how much they look like you or how good the, they speak. Their opinions cannot weigh more than the opinions of God. They majored in the minors, which allows them to ignore the majors. And what were the majors that they ignored? That People matter more than principles. 
people matter more than principles. He says, you ought to have done the things that you're doing, but you ought to have done them without neglecting the weight of your matters, matters of justice and mercy and faithfulness, which all exist in the context of relationships, meaning people are more important than principles. And we can go into the parable Jesus tells about the Samaritan who is the only individual who helps not the religious, not the priest. Because people matter more than principles. God sent his son for the sake of people, not principles. You cannot engage in worship and neglect the people God has placed in your life. I want you to hear this. If the actions of your life do not reflect the character of Jesus, then your worship isn't working. I want you to hear what I said. If the actions of your life don't reflect his character, then your worship isn't working. You're wasting your worship. Because true worship transforms us. Because true worship is about seeing more of him. And when we see more of him, we become like him. But every time we worship and we ignore the Holy Spirit's pulling to become more like Jesus, we waste our worship. Jesus talks about the internal versus the external. I want you to notice that the work of the kingdom is primarily internal. Before Jesus rules your life, he has to rule your heart. And what you have to do is eliminate pride because pride desires to have others see you as better than you actually are. It is pride that tells you, I, I want to be seen as more holy than I am, more spiritual than I am, more in love with God than I actually am, more put together than I actually am. That is pride. And God hates pride. He doesn't, when you're proud, God's not like, oh, let me work with you. No, no, he hates it. He says, get rid of that thing. Because it's, it, is, it is when you're least like me. The work of the kingdom is internal. And then lastly, we'll close here because Jesus looks at the Pharisees, and he says, hey, listen, I've come. I've come to gather you, O Israel, O Jerusalem, as a hen gathers her chicks. But you were not willing to come to me. You were not willing. I want you to notice that God actually requires your willingness, not your righteousness. 
God requires your willingness, not your righteousness. You say, what? I thought we were supposed to be righteous. Are we called to be holy? Are we called to be righteous? But the reality is your righteousness is not going to get you very far. And so God would rather have you be willing than you be righteous and full of pride and ego. Because most of our righteousness is self-righteousness. And so God would rather have you be willing because your willingness invites his work. Your willingness invites his work. Your willingness makes room for his righteousness. Because when you invite him, when you invite his work, that's when he begins to usher in his desires. That's when he begins to usher in his righteousness and he can actually do the work that he's been longing to do in you. And so where are the places in your life where there is inconsistency? Where there is a discrepancy between the life you profess and the life you actually live. The men and women that Jesus looks at at the end of the age and says, I never knew you are men and women who were playing the part. Because they, they say, hey, we did these things. And he says, I never knew you. You were playing the part this whole time. I'm telling you, there is nothing more dangerous than hypocrisy. One of the greatest places you can take a step in the right direction, because you and I all deal with these inconsistencies. But I want you to ask yourself the question, who is one person that I can be honest with? Who is one person that I can be totally transparent with? Because the Bible says that when we confess our sins, we are healed, not forgiven. Because when we confess our sins to God, we're forgiven. When we confess our sins to one another, we're healed. And so who in your life can you be totally transparent with and say, hey, I'm a hypocrite in this area. I've been playing the part. But in reality, this is who I really am. Can you pray with me? And as you expose those dark areas of your life that you keep hidden, God will usher in his light and he will bring life to those dead areas. And you will begin to journey after Jesus as an honest follower of him. Oh, how I'm praying for honest followers of Jesus to come to the church. For the self-righteous to be transformed and to say, hey, I've been playing the part, but I want to know him for real. I want to experience him for real. 
I want transformation in the places I've been resisting his work. And I'm telling you, God can do that. God can do that. He desires it, and all he wants is your willingness. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you even spoke through the prophet of the old and said, come, let us reason together. God, you are so good. Your goodness is beyond our comprehension. That you are patient and merciful toward us compassionate and gracious you are long suffering and so God I pray that we would not take advantage of that while we still live but that we would move into being followers of Jesus who are honest and transparent with where we're at May our weaknesses make room for your strength. Let your power be demonstrated. Remove the hypocrisy from our minds and our hearts and ultimately our lives. Let there be no one here, myself included, who has one foot in and one foot out. Let there be no one here, and myself included, who preaches better than they live, who posts better than they live. Remove that discrepancy so that the life you promise us in your word can actually be seen in our lives. I thank you that you can do that and that you will do that. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen.